First Thessalonians 2.13 says, For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. And Father, we humbly bow and ask in your presence for just the help and the assistance of your spirit to be alert and even attentive and even to just anticipate what it is that you want to say to us this morning. Lord, give us an ear to hear what your spirit wants to say to this part of your church through this particular portion of your word. Lord, you know what we need and you know what we mean and what we're asking right now. Help us, Lord, not to be distracted with other things, but we pray that your Holy Spirit would prepare us and that he would personally speak to us exactly what we need to hear and that your voice would communicate to each one of us through your word this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, how a person responds to something always has a major effect upon what transpires in their life. For example, how a person receives or rejects love from other people has a very powerful effect upon their relationships. How a person receives counsel or how a person responds to correction has a major effect upon their life experiences and their maturity and their ability to develop as an individual. How a person receives knowledge or instruction has a direct effect upon their reasoning and how they think through things in this life. How a person responds to warnings has a direct effect upon their safety and their security. Uh, in a physical sense, how a person's body receives medicine oftentimes has an effect upon their health or their longevity. But most important of all is how a person responds to the Word of God. Because how a person responds to the Word of God is life-changing. And that's what this very verse we're looking at this morning indicates to us. Paul here is speaking of regarding how these believers as a young church there responded to the word of God when it was delivered to them, when it was brought to them by Paul and his missionary team. He describes here how they embraced its divine authorship and the inspiration of the word of God by the spirit of God. You notice Paul said there, you welcomed it, he says, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, or as it truly is, the word of God. In other words, Paul's indicating how they properly recognized and resolved to accept what was true, that these words were not from men, but that they were divine communication. Divine communication from God to men. And this correct response regarding the word of God has a drastic difference on what then happens in a person's life, spiritually and morally and in every way, ultimately, eternally. And the text is indicating that to us. In essence, what this verse is saying to us is that a correct response to the word of God will indeed affect and cause God's power to produce and accomplish what he intends in our lives. 
God's word, when we hear it, how we respond to it is going to then have a direct effect upon the power of God being able to accomplish in you and to be able to affect in you what God ultimately intends for your life. The background, which I think is key to where verse 13 speaks to us this morning, is verse 1 through 12 last week. Remember, we saw Paul was talking there about his ministry service among them there in Thessalonica. He was describing how they ministered there. And the last thing he then said in verse 12, if you look back with me there, draw your attention to verse 12, Paul says that this is what our goal and our intention was when we came to minister to to you. That you, he said, would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul knew two things. First of all, he sensed that God is always calling people continuously. It's in the present tense there. God is continuously calling people, inviting people into his kingdom that they might experience God's glory for their life. That speaks there of how it's God's heart and effort continuously to save people, that people would enter into the kingdom of God and experience ultimately the heavenly kingdom that God intends and plans for every one of our lives. And the way to enter into that is to hear God calling us and to respond to that call and to experience God's kingdom and to experience God's glory, we enter into that by faith as we recognize that we are sinful and that we are under the wrath of God because of our sin. But we then realize that if we receive Jesus Christ as our personal savior to forgive our sins and give us the hope and gift of eternal life, and when we follow him, we are then, in a sense, ushered into that experience of the kingdom of God. We enter into a relationship with him, and we then experience, ultimately, the kingdom literally as we go into God's presence. Now, once people accept God's gift of eternal life, they then become a child of God. We then begin a spiritual walk with God in a personal, relational way, not being religious, but a relational experience of walking with God like a friend in a relationship, a child and a father. We have that relational experience. And what Paul says here in verse 12 is that he wanted to see people, look at it there, he says, walk worthy of that spiritual calling. He wanted to see people walk consistent with the incredible high spiritual calling of being a child of God, to be a dedicated follower of Jesus, to live faithfully, as God's child in a relationship with him. And the way a person encounters the kingdom of God initially and then walks worthy of that call that God puts upon our lives to be his child, hear me, is directly related to how a person responds to the word of God. That is why the Holy Spirit's very next statement in verse 13 is this, For this reason, we thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, you heard from us, you welcomed it as the word of men, not, excuse me, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which he says now effectively works in you who believe. I want you to see the connection there between verse 12 and 13. How do we walk worthy of God? And entering into his kingdom and his glory, how do we walk worthy of that? That has direct connection to how we relate to the word of God. This is what Paul is getting to here. Paul in verse 13 now is expressing how grateful he was to God for their receptivity to his word because it was now having a powerful effect within them. 
Paul says there in the 13th verse, he says, for this reason, we are thanking God without ceasing, continually thanking God. Now, I want you to notice this about Paul. Paul seems to be someone who understood the importance of expressing gratitude to God for the things in which he was doing and accomplishing in people's lives. He says, we thank God regarding this without ceasing, continually. We just keep thanking God. Every time we think of it, we just find ourselves thanking God once again. Uh, And what was that reason for how they were relating to God's word and the result of that in their lives? Now, we saw back in chapter 1, where Paul there was thanking God for the evidence and fruit of their salvation and how he saw that. He says there in chapter 1, we thank God for the work of faith and the labor of love and you're now patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now again, here in chapter 2, we find Paul once again expressing gratitude towards God. Here's what's interesting is it always seems that when Paul's expressing gratitude to God, it always seems to be in relationship to the spiritual work that Paul saw God doing in people's lives. Now, not that Paul was not thankful for material things. There's nothing wrong with that. or Not that he wasn't thankful for other things that God was doing. But it seems Paul was specifically appreciative and especially grateful for times when he observed spiritual works of God happening in people's lives. And let me just say, the Holy Spirit sets that before us, I think, as a great pattern that we should all embrace. Maybe you say, well, I don't have anything to be thankful for. You know, materially, circumstantially, my life's a mess, this is wrong, that's wrong, and people's lives are... But look, you know what? There's always something that you can be thankful to God for. Number one, the work he's doing in your life. That he opened your eyes and made you realize your need for a relationship with him, that he saved you and he took away your sins and he's destined you for eternity no matter how bad life is circumstantially. And to look around and say, wow, look how God has worked in my children's life or how he's worked in my spouse's life or how he's working in this person. Wow, And, and there's always something so beautiful to be thankful for. And you know what? Those things matter more than anything else anyway. Those are the things we should be most appreciative for, what God's doing in people's lives spiritually and eternally. So what was this specific reason, verse 13 tells us, that Paul and Silas and Timothy says that we keep thanking God without ceasing for? Well, we're directly told there, he says, again, the direct reason why. He says, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as is in truth, the word of God. Paul indicates here in these terms how he sensed that the Thessalonian believers had correctly, if you would, and accurately distinguished in relation to God's word the distinction between human stewardship and also divine authorship. Between human stewardship and divine authorship in relation to God's word. The first thing we take note of in verse 13 is how Paul saw the reality of how they recognized human stewardship in the delivery of God's word or bringing or transmitting God's word. He refers their memory here in our verse back to the time when they came to Thessalonica originally and they delivered the word of God and it was first received by Paul and Silas and Timothy And you notice that word in verse 13 there, our first word, received the word of God. That term means to listen to respectfully, and it also means to give attention with consideration. That was the initial attitude 
as Paul and Silas and Timothy came to the community of Thessalonica and they spoke the word of God, that was the initial receptivity to what they were saying. They were People were giving attention to it. They were giving consideration to it respectfully. And note, however, the means whereby the word of God was delivered to them. Very clearly, Paul's indicating here, it was through human messengers, through Paul and Silas and Timothy. He says, you heard the word of God from us, from people, speaking the word of God as human messengers. Now, when we see that phrase used there in verse 13, you receive the word of God. That's referring to two things. Number one, certainly it's referring to the message of the gospel. That is that glorious good news where God proclaims to all men that we are sinful by nature and that we all make mistakes and we all fall short of God's glory, that we can't work our way into heaven because we all fail in some way, thought, word, and deed. But yet the good news that God in his great love didn't leave us in that condition, but made a way for us to be forgiven and have access into heaven through his son, Jesus Christ, and that Jesus came to this earth and died upon the cross for our sins taking the punishment upon himself and rose again from the dead. So now as the savior, he can forgive sins and he can give us a relationship with God through him and the gift of eternal life. And that if we are willing to repent of our sins and turn to Jesus and receive him as savior and Lord, we can experience salvation. And that was the message Paul brought to them. They brought the gospel as a part of the word of God. But it also, I think, is a reference to written scripture because some of what Paul spoke about, Acts 17 tells us when he went there, came clearly from reasoning with the scriptures among them. So that's a reference as well to not just the gospel itself, but written scripture, the Old Testament, which was in existence already and circulating in that time historically, as well as the spiritual and doctrinal truths that were taught by Paul verbally to the people that then ultimately became recorded in written form that give to us our New Testament scripture, the things that we now have recorded in the New Testament. But Paul wants to emphasize to these believers, when we came, he says, please remember with me, when we came, it was the word of God that was the thing that you heard from us. The thing that you heard from us was the word of God. That points to the activity and priority of Paul's ministry. That when Paul and his team came among Thessalonica, they came to them with an intentional purpose, with a primary goal, which was to bring the word of God to that community, to speak the word of God. That was the topic in personal conversations. That was how they counseled people. That was what they preached and what they taught. It was the word of God. Acts 17, we looked at it together when we started our study in Thessalonica, records the planting of the church of Thessalonica. Let me just read to you a few verses from there in relation to what we're saying. There it says this in Acts 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths, or three weeks, He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. 
So there's the record of the church planning efforts of Paul and his team in Thessalonica. They came and it says they reasoned with the people. The term there means to dialogue. They dialogued from the scriptures, the Old Testament passages, seeking to prove and communicate to people to demonstrate and explain things about Jesus Christ, to present Jesus to people. So Paul says, when we came, this was what we intentionally came for. It wasn't to impress you. It wasn't to create a a, a gathering and get the most followers on an Instagram or a Twitter account. Look how many followers we have or to become spiritual celebrities. Paul said, no, we came with an intentional purpose to you. We wanted to declare the word of God. We wanted to bring the word of God because that's what people need. That's what helps people understand who Jesus is. That's what helps people walk with Jesus and grow spiritually. Paul's presence among them resulted in the presentation of God's word to people in that community. That was the primary thing. And can I just say this by way of application? May that example be something that we all embrace for our lives, where we would intentionally, if you would, seek to share the word of God wherever God sends us. And wherever God puts us in our experiences, life among humanity is very social. People communicate, people talk. So as a result of that, let's capitalize on that as people and be proactive and be intentional in that when we do talk to people and have conversations in our schools with fellow students in our job places or with our families, that we would intentionally try and direct conversations and steer communication to the topic of the word of God. And I think to do that, it does require a balance of sensitivity and courage. It takes spiritual sensitivity to not just beat people over the head with the Bible and, you know, in an awkward, bizarre way, just overly be trying to push the scriptures down people's throat all the time. I think there's spiritual sensitivity to when it's the right timing and the right occasion to maybe just bring up something from scripture, say, well, you know, it's interesting. God's word happens to say this about that. You know, it may shock somebody that, wow, God's word relates to something in everyday life or what's going on. And I think there is a sensitivity that's required, but there also needs to be, let's be honest, a spiritual courage if we're ever going to do it. Because, see, we can, well, I'm just trying to be spiritually sensitive, so it never seems like the right time to bring it up. Look, this is why balance here. There requires a spiritual boldness and courage to, at times, be the one who's going to have the, the, you know, the fortitude to initiate conversation off of something else other than how wacky Miley Cyrus is now or something. And to talk about something of decency, something of helpfulness. And here's why I say this, gang, because people are hearing all kinds of garbage. I mean, with whether it's social media or conversations around the job place or among students and school systems, people are always hearing about garbage and foolishness. People are talking about the most you know, meaningless, frivolous, ridiculous things, political things. Look... How wonderful, how valuable if we, of all people, would be intentional about saying, you know what, can I be one person who talks about something of substance, who brings up something that may have a little meaning and and actually help people that may be truth? Psalm 119, 172, the psalmist says, my tongue shall speak of your word. 
for all your commandments are righteous. My tongue shall speak of your word. May God help us, like Paul being intentional. When we came, we spoke the word of God to you, that when God puts you in your school or your job or your neighborhood or your friends and sphere of influence, that you say, you know what, maybe I could be the one person that brings up the word of God and maybe something the Bible says, some verse that I read or something that could be helpful in a way that would actually have some impact and some influence in a good way. And again, remember, God speaking to men primarily happens by God speaking through men. That is typically the primary way that God speaks is through human beings communicating his heart and will and word to other human beings. That's true of the very origin of Scripture, that God brought the Scripture, the Word of God, by delivering his word to men, by using actually the words of men who his spirit inspired and directed to speak what he wanted said. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But we see the same pattern of communication repeatedly of sharing the word of God as God reaches people continually. That same pattern of God using men to speak to men, to bring to them his word. This is what Paul's saying. When we came to you, he says, you heard the word of God from us. Because we spoke to you, because we communicated with you, spirit-directed conversations and communications. And that's how God speaks to people continuously to this day, trying to reach more and more people. God speaks to people through gifted and anointed human messengers, teachers and preachers and evangelists. Paul says, that which I receive from the Lord, I now deliver unto you. But I'll tell you this. God also can speak his word through any person that's just willing and available to be used. Acts chapter 4, we mentioned this verse to you just recently. There it says the disciples. It doesn't say the apostles. It doesn't say Paul and Peter. It says the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Just a follower of Jesus speaking the word of God boldly as the Holy Spirit gave the strength and power. David declared of himself as a shepherd, a psalmist, Second Samuel 23. David said, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. Again, our world, would you agree, it is filled. It is filled with people who are blinded and confused by error that they have embraced. And how wonderful if we would take serious our opportunity and make it our resolve to say, I'm going to let God use me to speak truth. I'm going to let God use me to be a voice of truth, to bring his word to people wherever he has put me. Now, what mattered to Paul most, notice, however, in our verse, was not just how they heard the word of God initially. That was good. But what really mattered to Paul was what they then did with God's word responsively. Look with me in our verse here again. Paul says, when you heard the word of God, look as he goes on. He says, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, as the very words from God himself now secondly here we now see this speaking of paul realizing their ability to distinguish god's word in its divine authorship that the word of god they realized they identified accepted and embraced was the very words of god himself 
It wasn't just people who spoke creatively about God. It was communication directly from God in its origin. The very source of the words, the speech was divine in its origination and its communication. And Paul says, note the term there. It's a different term and it should be in your Bible translation. He says, you welcomed it. Now, Paul purposely there uses a different Greek word than from above when they first heard the word and he said, you received it. That word we said when they first heard it to receive meant to listen to it respectfully and give attention with consideration. That's what they did at first. But their response, Paul said, this is what I'm thanking God for, though. But what I'm thanking God for is that you didn't just listen to it respectfully and consider it. He says, what we're thankful to God for is you then welcomed it. You then in a sense, embraced it personally. That term there in the Greek means to commit to with acceptance. The visual is this, is that when they were hearing the word of God, at some point they then embraced it and took it into themselves. The term Paul uses there for their response to God's word speaks of taking someone into your home, not just as a guest, but to live as a resident. And Paul says, this is what I'm really thankful for, that you didn't just listen respectfully. Okay, just come on, say what you want to say, preacher, hurry up. Or come on, tell me the gospel. Yeah, I'll I'll listen respectfully. I don't want to be rude. I know you, you Jesus people like to talk about him once in a while. That's giving, or I'll think about it. Paul says, no, you went beyond thinking about it. You embraced it for yourself. You said, that is true. That is the very, that's not words. That is God's word. And Paul says, you welcomed it, you embraced it. How do they welcome it? He says, they're not as the word of men. In other words, they distinguish. These aren't just thoughts and ideas that arose from human origin. They didn't view it as something men creatively made up to speak about God. But he says, but as it is in truth, the idea is as it truly is the word of God. The word of God himself, divine in its origin and authorship and its speech and communication. Luther said this, I quote, it's a great statement. He said, it cannot be otherwise for the scriptures are divine. In them, God speaks. They are his word to hear or read the scriptures is nothing else than to hear God. To hear or read the scriptures is nothing else than to hear God. Remember, yes, God's method of transmitting or delivering his word to humanity is to use the words of men. And we can, we can agree to that. It's true, God speaks through people, but people are just the transmitters that God uses to deliver his word in a way that people can grasp and understand people are just the transmitters to receive and convey the thoughts that God wants to speak among humanity. That's true, as I said earlier, in how the writing of Scripture was delivered originally to humanity. God used select men as if you would his ink pens. He took up a pen and he used select individuals, if you would, to pen and record his words and will to humanity. Peter says it this way. Listen to what Peter says, First Peter 1. He tells us that scripture and prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved 
by the Holy Spirit. That word moved by the Holy Spirit there literally speaks of how the wind fills the sails of a ship and pushes it in the direction that the wind is directing it. That's what the Bible says. This is what happened. God breathed out by his spirit, and God, if you would, without removing personality or individuality of men, worked through distinct individuals that he selected, guiding and influencing their thoughts and communication to convey his word, to communicate his thoughts and his ideas what he wanted said. That's why Paul says it's not the word of men, but as it is in truth, it truly is the word of God. Look, unlike any other book in human history, this, what you're holding in your lap, I hope this morning, is not a human document. It's not something that originated with the ideas of human beings. It is a divinely authored book inspired by the very spirit of God himself, who breathed his life into it and spoke his will. If I can illustrate, you know, we all use cell phones nowadays. And these devices, that, these cell phones that we use, uh, you know, they don't speak on their own. If, if I want to communicate something through this, this is just a device, if you would, that transmits what I'm saying. But the words that come through the cell phone as you speak to someone else on the other line of it, that device is just something to receive and to convey the communication of what I'm saying. But I'm the one speaking on the other side of it. And see, in the same way, human writers, the writers, the authors of Scripture, they were just the vehicles anointed and directed by the Spirit of God as God breathed by His Spirit and moved them with His thoughts and His ideas and concepts and truths. They were just the vehicles to deliver God's Word clearly, thank God, in a way that we can understand and in a way that we can comprehend and grasp. Look, God wants to speak to people. He wants to talk to you. He wants to speak to me. And it's an indication of his love and wisdom that he opted to speak in a method that we could grasp, that we could understand, that he used fellow men to communicate thoughts and words to mankind. That's what's meant by the inspiration of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It was breathed out by God. And understand, when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, that does not just mean that God superintended over what people wrote and kind of, okay, I'll accept that, but not that, and he kind of just supervised the writing. That's not what it means. What that means is God totally directed every word that they said because they were his words. They were divine words that were authored by God. And let me say this morning, beyond just mere faith alone and assenting, okay, I agree this is a divine authorship because I'll just believe it by faith. Let me just say to you as a Christian this morning, or even maybe somebody who's not yet a Christian and you're trying to weigh out, is all this true? And should I really accept the credibility of the Bible? I want to tell you this morning, beyond just choosing to believe, there are many proofs that validate the divine authorship of the word of God. One of them being what we call internal unity, internal unity, which is basically a reference to how 
this thing that we call the Bible, which is 66 different separate books, it's a library of books, letters, poetry, so forth. This thing that we call the Bible collectively was written by over 40 different human authors, various different languages, over a 1,500-year time period with people on different continents by shepherds, fishermen, kings, scholars, and yet take all that variation of 1,500-year span, different languages, different continents, different authors, and yet there's total consistency throughout the whole thing. There's not contradictions. We, we try and look for contradictions, and every time someone tries to do that, they just end up playing the fool again as they realize that there's no contradictions. There's consistency. You can't take a math book from one year to five years later and it's changed again, or history books. We change them all the time. Or take three writers on any topic and there's disagreements and inconsistency. Yet there's internal consistency in this book. Why? Because there was one author. There was one author the whole time. One author inspiring and directing. It's divine. It's like no other book. Other things, archaeological provability. Every time the archaeology spade goes in the ground, it continues to validate the things that the Scripture speaks about historically. Scientific accuracy. We often are still, through research, discovering things that the Bible already said from hundreds of years ago, and we're just discovering it now through research. As well, fulfilled prophecy. No other holy book dare do that. Predict events before they ever come to pass? You want to talk about a way to discredit yourself real quick? The audacity to say this is going to happen in the future, hundreds of years before it ever happens? No other holy book includes prophecy because one failed prophecy, one mistake, you've discredited yourself. Yet the Bible is filled with thousands of prophecies, and many of them which have already been fulfilled. Why? Because only a God outside of historical human existence who knows what the future already is because he expands time and eternity can say this is what's going to happen 700 years from now. And it comes to pass. It's indication of God's divine authorship. Another evidence that Paul wants to bring to our attention here in verse 13 at the end of our text is this. The evidence of God's word's power to transform lives. That's another indication of its divine authorship, its power to transform lives. There's no disputing that the word of God has changed and transformed people's lives incredibly. This is what Paul is indicating here by citing the spiritual work that happened among the people in Thessalonica. He says there, because you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. He says, that's the reason now as a result that it is effectively working in you who believe. Here's the point you need to see. Their proper response to the word of God activated the power to begin to have influence in their life eternally. Their proper response to the word of God activated its power within their lives internally. Paul says there, it's now effectively working in you who believe. The term there in the Greek is energizo, where we get our English word energy. Energy. And he's saying there's a supernatural energy. There's a divine energy encoded in the DNA of this book because of its divine authorship and because it has the very breath and life of God contained within it. 
in such a way that when a person embraces it, it begins to work inside a person's life. And look, let's just be very honest with one another. This book transforms people's lives. It makes crooked people become straight. It, through history, has made perverse people become pure. And people who are sinful and depraved become rather saintly in the way that they live. How? No other book does that. No other book does that. Nothing else on this planet can impact and change hearts and souls and lives of people in such a way. Hebrews 4.12 tells us this, For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Jeremiah, when he spoke of God's word, he said, God's word is like a fire burning in hearts. And he also said, and it's like a hammer that can break rock in pieces. It can burn away junk out of people's lives. It can soften people that are so hard. And even people that aren't even softened by fire, he says, God's word at times is like a hammer. And it can break through the hardest hearts. And it has this powerful impact. What's incredibly interesting is we realize here from what the scripture is saying in verse 13 is that somehow as humans, we can either contribute to or hinder the potential, the potential of the effectiveness of God's word working inside of us, what it is really able to accomplish. Notice what Paul's saying there in verse 13. It's indicating a conditional experience. Paul says there, it's directly because you there in Thessalonica have welcomed this not as the word of men, but as the word of God. It's because you welcomed it in that way. He says, that is the reason, therefore, it's now effectively working in you who believe that way. What Paul is driving home is the word of God having maximum and ultimate effect in a human soul and spirit is the result of coming to by faith and holding a proper perspective about this, that it is indeed the very words of God Almighty. And somehow that has a very incredible beneficial ability that when we embrace the divine authorship and authority of this book, it serves to initiate or it serves to somehow spiritually activate the power contained within it to be released in a life internally to begin to have maximum impact and its effectiveness to work in us. There's an energy that's released inside a human soul. For example, salvation, experiencing salvation through Jesus Christ. How does that come? Through the word of God. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Paul said in Romans, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God. It, the gospel message, is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. Now, here's what's interesting. Our belief and choice to respond to this book and its declarations and its truths and what it says to embrace it as the word of God oftentimes can make the eternal difference of what happens inside of us and it effectively working what God can use it to work in our lives even in relation to salvation. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.2. It's critical. He says this, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith by those 
who heard it. Wow. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. There's the power of God to save a soul eternally to those who believe. But Paul says there are others who heard the word of God and it didn't profit them. They heard the same gospel message, same message. They heard the same thing that we did. Audibly, they heard the exact same message. They respectfully considered it, but he says it didn't profit them. It it did not bring effect in them because they didn't mix faith. They didn't say, that's true, and I choose to believe it. And boy, that is critical to realize. You can hear the message of salvation, but the thing is this, what do you do with it? If you choose to say, I choose to believe upon Jesus, I choose to accept this for myself, then the power of salvation will happen in your life. If you choose to reject it and to say, I'm not believing that, and you choose to remain in your sin, then the power of God's salvation, in a sense, can be rejected and refused from your life. What an amazing thing. The power of salvation is within the word of God, but our response to it is critical. This book also, the word of God and how we relate to it, it can bring transformation and change. 2 Timothy 3.16 speaks of how God's word is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that as men and women of God, we can become thoroughly equipped for every good work. We can become complete and mature. Again, all those things becoming mature, God's word correcting me, God's word reproving you when you're wrong. If you relate to this as the word of God and say, God, this is your word, then something powerful happens that when you then hear it or read it or, or, or relate to it, it is a powerful, effective work within you to reprove you and to say, your attitude's wrong. The way you've been behaving is incorrect. And it can challenge us and correct us and stand us back up and put us straight again if we relate to it as the word of God, as we should. I think of all the benefits of Psalm 119, that great psalm about God's word, or we quoted Hebrews 4 earlier, how God's word, it's living, it's powerful. It's like a two-edged sword, and it comes in. Has it not in your life as it has in mine? And it, it literally does surgery in your life. And, and precision surgery helps you even to discern between what's soulish and what's spiritual, what's emotional and what's spiritual. Because sometimes we're so complex, it's hard to figure that out, isn't it? God, is this my emotions? Or is this your spirit? God, are these my thoughts? Or is this something of your spirit? And it's the word of God, if you take it as the word of God, that like a two-edged sword, it goes in and it cuts and it divides. And it has this incredible ability to bring change. I mean, man, this book can bring powerful changes in your life. Maybe you're here this morning and say, I want to change. I'm tired of being this way in my life. Well, listen, let me tell you, the way you relate to this book can change your life. It can transform your life. It can correct things that are wrong. It can heal things that are broken and damaged. It can restore things that are incorrect in your life. And it can guide you and change you and make you a different person. Now, when we see here this direct connection to our view of God's word and its power working in us, how important then would you agree that we come to a place where we hold an accurate view of the word of God? It's one thing to hear it and respectfully entertain its statements and consider it somewhat. It's a whole other thing when you come to a place where you, where you personally decide for yourself, this is the very words of Almighty God. Infallible, 
inerrant, authoritative, because how you respond and relate to this book affects everything. Everything. And I'll tell you this, the devil knows that reality, and that's why one of his primary tactics, one of his primary tactics is to challenge and attack that reality. From Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden, the beginning, what did the devil do? His first words that show up in the Bible, what is he doing? He's questioning what God said. Has God indeed said, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What's the devil doing? Questioning the word of God, trying to get them to question the word of God because he knows this reality. And so he's always going to try and get people to question scripture. That's why there are such attacks against the word of God and why the devil was working so effectively in that way. And the devil will always try and get you personally to question the word of God. Well, I mean, I know it says that, but I mean, he's always going to work. We have to resist that. We have to resist that. Good question to ask yourself this morning is this. Do you desire to walk worthy of God? who's calling you to his kingdom and glory, a lot of that depends upon how you relate to and respond to the word of God. And I want to really challenge each and every one of us in relation to this this morning. I'm not just talking about lip service that we can proclaim about the Bible because maybe we grew up a Christian or we've been a part of the church, and so we say, yeah, yeah, the scripture is inspired. Yeah, I, I, scripture, it, it, it's God's word. I, I, I wouldn't argue that. It's God's word. Because I would say this this morning to challenge us. It's one thing to acknowledge with my mouth that this is the word of God. It's another thing to act by the way that I live, relate, and respond that this is the word of God. I have found in lives, my own and others as well, that when you receive this book not as the word of men, but it actually is in truth the word of God, it will affect two things very powerfully. Number one, the authority of it over your life. Because then what it says is the absolute authority. And it does not matter what others are saying. It does not matter what others are doing. It does not matter what the world is communicating. It does not matter how you feel. It does not matter how well you can argue and justify, well, it's okay to be like this, or it's okay to do that, or because the authority of this book in every matter of faith and practice will be the final authority, and you will say, Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? And so the scripture says that, so that's what the truth is. And that's the authority, and I will submit to that, and I will respond to that and live according to what the scripture says. So it will affect the authority of God's word over your life, and it also will powerfully affect the priority of God's word in your life. Look, if I sincerely believe that this is the word of God, of God. Don't tell me that's not going to affect the priority I'm going to put on this book. Don't tell me that's not going to affect the fact that I'm going to say, then boy, I want to hear something from this every day. If this is how God talks to people, if this is what God has to say, then the priority of this over other things in my life over watching you know, more of this or doing more of that or playing more with this or you know, talking to all these other people. Look, the priority of this is whew, it's going to go very high because this is God's word. Hey, this morning, can I challenge you? What priority do you put on God's word in your life? 
Maybe it's a great opportunity to say, Lord, this is the word of God, and therefore, Lord, I need to put more priority on it. I need to make time for your word, to read it for 10, 15 minutes a day, to, to read some portion of it, whether you are 13 or whether you've been saved for 13 years, that you would say, I need to give priority to God's word privately, personally. I need to make a priority on hearing God's word, gathering in Bible studies and worship services collectively because it's the word of God. And nothing else will effectively work in your life to help you than the word of God.